Welcome to the Editor's Monthly Podcast of AJPH. I am Alfredo Moradia, the Editor-in-Chief, and this is August 7, 2017. I have this month three guests to discuss a massive public health problem, which is rarely mentioned and probably underestimated, the unequal access to water in the United States. I will first call Carolyn Brooks from the Harvard T.H. Chen School of Public Health. Carolyn is the first author of a paper in the September issue of AJPH, which assesses the role of tap water and other beverages in disparities in hydration status among U.S. adults. I will then call Anisha Patel. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, and discuss with her the connection between access to tap water and the obesity epidemic. We will review with her the initiatives taken in Kentucky and California to facilitate access to tap water. During Professor Patel's interview, I will quickly call Kelly Deering-Smith. She's a vice president of communications and marketing of Louisville Water Company. And I'll ask her whether the Louisville Pure Tap initiative works. I'm now calling Carolyn Brooks. Hey, Carolyn. Yes, hi, Dr. Murray. How are you? Fine, and you? Doing well. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Tell me, uh, Carolyn, what uh, made you decide to do this analysis of NHANES about uh, hydration in the U.S.? Yeah, so there were really two main motivations for this paper. Um, back in 2005, the senior author on our paper published a study being the first to document the prevalence of inadequate hydration among kids in the United States and found some striking results with about half of U.S. children not being adequately hydrated and also found some significant racial ethnic disparities. So those findings drove us to want to explore whether we would see kind of a similar pattern among U.S. adults. Additionally, the kind of ongoing and recent water crisis in Flint, Michigan, as well as some of the other research documenting differences in water intake and sugary drinks, led us to want to investigate the idea that perhaps disparities in tap water intake may play a role in some of the patterns that we would find in hydration status. I see. And so you use this term... Uh Inadequate hydration. What, what is it? How yeah. do I know I'm inadequately hydrated? Yeah, so as you may know, hydration is essential for your proper physiological functioning, and extreme dehydration is associated with very serious health problems that will require immediate attention. But what our team looked at was more mild levels of inadequate hydration, such as when a person begins to feel thirsty. Um, and, and this level really matters because inadequate hydration can, while it doesn't have those severe consequences, it can impair daily functioning and well-being. It has symptoms such as fatigue, irritability, reduced cognitive function, poor physical performance, and headaches, which all, all of those are important um, aspects of one's daily life that, um, if not functioning properly, can definitely um, cause some health outcomes. So people who are inadequately hydrated, uh, so they don't have access to water or liquid, or they are not, they don't want to drink. What's what's the the origin of this? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's hard to pin it down. Um, and we do get hydration from both um, beverage intake as well as moisture from foods. Um, but, you know, we should keep in mind that not everyone has the ability to stay well hydrated throughout the day. Um, so while some people are able to carry around refillable water bottles, um, others, either because of their work schedules, the cost, um, their preferences and just what they're used to, they may not get a chance to drink something when they're thirsty or they may just not be as responsive to thirst. Additionally, um, you know, climate or other occupational exposures, like a lot of physical activity, for instance, that can also influence one's hydration status and make it potentially harder to stay well hydrated throughout a day. And so in your study, you used a, an objective measure of hydration. You didn't ask people, are you thirsty, but you, you measured something in their urine. Yes. So we um, looked at a measure, which is the urine osmolality. Um, and this is a laboratory measure of urine concentration. So how concentrated one's urine is. In Haines, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, they collect urine from participants. And this allows us and other researchers who are interested in examining hydration to be able to use this as a broad marker of population health, um, not really as an individual diagnosis. And if I have a a high osmolality, it means I'm dehydrated. There's some technical differences in dehydration and what we're considering to be inadequate hydration, which is this crude measure um, or cut point of 800. Um, and there are a variety of things that can impact one's hydration status. Um, like I said, it's not just water, but other beverages, to, uh, total food moisture, um, whether or not one is using blood pressure medication, the kind of overall number of chronic conditions that they have, their body mass index, sodium consumption. So there's all these different factors. And in our study, we did try to adjust for as many of those as we could to get a sense at, that after controlling for those, do we see that there are these differences? So it's not just water intake that influences hydration status, but that is what we think can move one from an inadequately hydrated state to something that's more um, hydrated. I see. And so would you agree, I mean, according to what you write in your paper, that uh, if we were doing a uh, Urine osmolality on all U.S. adults, about a third of them would have a level above this 800 cutoff. Yes, yeah, so that, that is what we found using this cutoff, that nearly a third of the overall sample was inadequately hydrated um, in this, you know, sample of the U.S. adult population. Um, and I guess it maybe it sounds high, um, but as I mentioned, a similar study that was conducted in looking at U.S. children in a in adolescence, they found that nearly a half of kids, um, or 50%, over 50%, were inadequately hydrated. So we do think that this is plausible for adults, um, and it is similar to some other estimates that we've seen from some other European countries. This is uh, really huge. Yeah, for the children, they saw, saw a higher prevalence, um, and yes, definitely um, in their ability to concentrate and, and perform um, both emotionally and behaviorally, um, that could definitely have some potential impact. Mm -hmm. And you find that Hispanics have a, a highest prevalence of inadequate hydration. Why is it so? Yeah, um, we saw that after adjusting for all the other factors, including beverage intake, that um, Hispanics had that high, the highest prevalence. Um, and we talked a lot about this, but I, I don't want to speculate because really we don't know what's going on with the Hispanic disparity. Um, but we do think that these findings present the need for more research into understanding what's going on. Um, in our study, we were simply able to document the disparities 
and conduct some preliminary investigation as to why these disparities exist as it relates to that beverage and total moisture intake. But future research would be needed to really hone in on what's driving these inequities, particularly among the Hispanic population. But it is concerning. Mm -hmm. I see. And also another thing that uh, I found very interesting is that uh, it was tap water that seemed to explain the difference in hydration and not uh, sugar-sweetened beverages or soda. Uh, can you explain why it would be tap water but not soda since there is water in soda, right? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. Um, and, you know, th that wasn't our primary research question. Others have studied more extensively the differences in the makeup of um, sugary drinks, so I can't comment definitively. Um, however, it is possible that there could be some other ingredients in soda um, or sugary beverages that may impact hydration, but I'm not familiar with this. But even if sugar-sweetened beverages did help do help with hydration statuses. They don't have the same health and financial benefits as tap water, um, given their the well-documented impact on risk of obesity and diabetes with excess um, consumption of sugary drinks, um, where tap water, on the other hand, is calorie-free and is low-cost. So it doesn't carry those same economic and health burdens of purchasing sugar-sweetened beverages. And so we think that is an ideal beverage for addressing hydration status. Though it is important to note that, you know, tap water, even though it may seem simple enough in many communities of color, there are both very real and perceived concerns regarding the safety of tap water, which makes, you know, going to your kitchen sink and pouring a glass, in a, a glass of water out of the faucet not as easy as it sounds. Um, so we think this research provides some um, important hi or highlights the need for policy and environmental and behavioral interventions that can increase both the access to as well as the consumption of healthy and affordable beverages. And we think tap water um, is has the potential um, to do that as long as there's access to safe um, and affordable tap water. Thank you very much, Caroline. Thank you so much. We appreciate it and um, we look forward to continuing this work. Let's join now Professor Anisha Patel. Hello. Hi. It's Hi, Anisha. Anisha. You know, half of the U.S. adults don't drink tap water on a given day, right? And about one-third of U.S. adults are inadequately hydrated. You know, this is a major public health problem, but uh, I would like to discuss with you one specific aspect of it is how this is connected to the obesity epidemic. Sure, great um, question. So as we all know, um, consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages such as sodas, sports drinks, and even fruit-flavored drinks um, is linked to obesity, both in children and adults. And data now are emerging to suggest that drinking water can actually help to reduce intake of these sugary drinks and may also help prevent obesity and other chronic diseases, um, such as um, dental caries. So it's just a question of uh, drinking uh, sodas rather than tap water. Yes, so the data suggests that it could be related to displacement of those beverages. So if someone were to drink um, tap water or other types of water, instead of those sugary drinks, which are loaded with calories, 
This can help reduce their caloric intake. Another hypothesis that has not yet been studied well enough is that perhaps drinking water can also help individuals feel more full or satiated, and therefore they eat less food. I see. But that is still something I don't understand quite well, because the adults are inadequately hydrated, so they, they don't drink enough liquid, right? And if you drink soda, you get liquid. So, so where is the problem? Yes. So I think, um, you know, if you're consuming soda as your um, beverage of choice, um, you are, it is counting as hydration, right? Because in the study um, that was conducted that had these findings, um, they looked at total um, water, which is coming from both foods and beverages, including sodas. However, if you can imagine, if an individual were to consume as their beverage of choice or their total body water, if they were to get that from a caloric food or beverage versus one that is non-caloric, it could make a difference in terms of their total daily caloric intake, and then that can then result in higher rates of obesity. Uh, yeah, yeah, I see the connection with the, with the caloric intake, but I just don't really understand why there is an issue related, how it's connected to uh, hydration. Is it that people who drink soda don't drink as much uh, water as uh, people who drink tap water do? So I think if tap water is, is much more readily accessible in the environment, so for example, you know, if individuals were to consume tap water, it's available in their home at pretty low cost. You know, you pay your water supply, um, municipal water supplier, you pay them a fee for obtaining water in your home, but it's still a much lower cost than if you were to purchase a sugary drink or another beverage, such as even bottled water. So individuals who drink tap water are, um, you know, much more likely to be hydrated than mm -hmm. individuals who do not. I see. So, so the... Uh... Uh, public health objective is actually to increase access to tap water, right? That's correct. And the goal, the reason why this is important is because, um, you know, individuals who are from lower income backgrounds and minority populations as well are much less likely to drink tap water than, bo than bottled water. They're, they're the individuals that are more likely to use their finite resources to actually purchase bottled water. Um, and so if tap water were more readily accessible to them in a way that it was safe and clean and appealing, then perhaps um, they would be able to drink that more readily and not have to use their income to purchase these other beverages. Um, and then they would also be more adequately hydrated because they have access to the tap water in their communities. Great. And uh, in your editorial, you described uh, the intervention of the water board in Kentucky. Can you just uh, remind us uh, what happened there, what they did? Sure, of course. Um, so in 1996, Louisville Water trademarked its tap water as Louisville Pure Tap. And the reason they did this was because they wanted to promote um, the excellent quality and delicious taste of their tap water, particularly as bottled water sales were rising at that time. And so as a part of their PureTap program, um, Louisville Water provides its customers with two PureTap branded reusable water bottles annually. They also have a robust website where they communicate information about their water quality um, to the customers in their um, area. And then also for public events, um, if you were interested, um, you could actually sign up to 
get large water dispensers from Louisville Water um, that you could use to fill up with tap water, and they also provide small cups. And do we know whether this initiative worked, whether people get more tap water since then? Yeah, so I don't actually know anything about the evaluation of the program, but that would be a really good question for them. Okay, let's go and ask the question. Kelly, are, are you in Louisville, Kentucky now? Yes, I am. And uh, tell me, when did you start uh, this program of uh, uh, Louisville Pure Tap? Yeah, so 20 years ago, Louisville Water decided to trademark its tap water, Louisville Pure Tap. So back in 1997, we began um, a very grassroots marketing customer education campaign to promote the value of water. And so how did the population react? They didn't like the tap water or what was the problem? So Louisville has this very rich history of innovation when it comes to, to tap water. A lot of the early experiments in the late 1800s on filtration happened here. Louisville is known for having great tasting tap water. Um, and so back in the, the late 1990s, when bottled water sales were really beginning to soar, um, the company thought that we're very proud of our product. Um, we, we don't believe bottled water is necessary unless there's an emergency. So we wanted a campaign to highlight the value and the health benefits. And our customer base, our population here in Louisville, quickly embraced the idea. Uh, we began distributing empty reusable bottles. We began showing up at events. We began mes messaging campaigns. So today, if you flash forward 20 years, the Louisville PureTap program through customer outreach um, reaches about a million people annually here in the Louisville area. Wow. And uh, so... How do you know whether the people have increased their consumption of, uh, of tap water? Under <laughs> well, this you know, program? there's a couple ways that you can easily say that, and one is go to social media. If you just type in Louisville Water on Twitter, you'll find lots of tweets from college students who miss our tap water when they go to school. They realize it doesn't taste as well. Um, we have local restaurants that proudly serve our water. We have a partnership with local businesses that have signage. Um, we have probably 75 to 100 schools a year that come to Louisville Water and borrow five-gallon coolers, fill them up. We provide compostable cups, and they use these products at their schools. Um, that's what I would call some of the soft data. Uh, Louisville Water does know through customer surveys that if people have been exposed to the Louisville PureTap program or they've seen us at an event, um, they're much more likely to have a very favorable impression of Louisville water. Um, so it, it does make a difference. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe that from a water utility standpoint, I mean, we're in the business of public health. So often people don't look at us as public health. They just look at us as a water utility. But we exist for public health. And, and so from a utility standpoint, the only time your customers see you can't be when you need money or when something breaks. Um, so that's why we firmly believe in customer outreach. So do, do you have any uh, survey data that will show you, for example, that uh, people drink more water and mm. less uh, soda, for example? I wish I had that concrete of data. Um, I can tell you that in the local schools here, um, we've seen an increase in the past five years from uh, parent-teacher organizations, from sports groups reaching out to us for products. And when I say products... That's reusable bottles, it's coolers and cups, and it's even mobile units that we'll bring to an event that provides an ongoing source of tap water. Um, I have to believe that that, that is twofold. One, it's, it's a conscious effort for hydration. Um, I think there's also an economic value to that as well. We're providing something that 
In the past, many people were just going to a convenience store and, and spending twenty, thirty, fifty dollars just just to serve water. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but uh, do, isn't there any opposition from, for example, mm -hmm. the the industry, the soda industry, for example? <laughs> well, that's interesting that you say that because I, I, you know, bottled water sells is what they sell the most of, um, and I do believe that a soda industry would look at us and say, well, there's still a need for our product. But what we've done at Louisville Water is we've treated tap water as a brand, um, it, more than just a logo for this program. So, for example, if we're at an event and, and a group asks us to be at an event, we, we're pretty firm that you don't serve bottled water. I tell people that if you worked at Coke, you wouldn't allow Pepsi in the building. So we're Louisville Water, Louisville Pure Tap, and we don't allow bottled water in an event where we participate. That's fantastic. And tell me, uh, Kelly, just uh, to close this, Louisville Water Company, it's a private or it's a public company? <laughs> we have a very interesting setup. We are the only water utility in America with a setup like we have. We were chartered as a private company in 1854, um, but no 18, one at that time. 1854. Yeah, 1854. Okay, We've right. been around, but no one uh, wanted to buy stock in our company. I'm convinced in this area they all drank bourbon. So by the early 1900s, the city of Louisville buys all of our stock. So the city owns Louisville Water, um, and we provide a dividend to the city every year. So really, our customers own us. We're a very unique setup. Mm, that's that's very interesting. Kelly, thank you so much. This was a, a very nice addition to this uh, podcast, and uh, I wish you all the best with the pure tap. Uh, thank you very much. Cheers to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Back to initiative. In California, there were some initiatives too. I think one uh, that has a Hispanic name, Agua for All. It's Spanglish. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in California, actually, um, the Agua for All program, the goal is to provide safe tap water access. And in California, we know that there are approximately 1 million predominantly low-income um, Latino or Hispanic residents who can't drink tap water from their tap in their home due to drinking water contaminants. And so the Agua for All program was established in 2014 to help with that. It's a partnership of community-based organizations and funders, and it really seems like it's a success. Um, the program has installed over 200 filtered reusable water bottle filling stations in parks, libraries, schools, clinics, and other public spaces in these communities that lack safe drinking water. They also post a water droplet icon near all the stations to signify that these water stations are safe. And we have conducted some um, evaluation that is preliminary, but showing that this um, does promote increased water intake among the population there. And, you know, I really like your idea of co coupling uh, the uh, taxes on soda and uh, to uh, tap water access initiatives that... Uh, can, can you explain how this would work, how you could connect both? Sure. So, um, as you know, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes are emerging um, nationally as an evidence-based approach to curb consumption of sugary drinks. Um, however, there are some opponents that worry that these taxes may be regressive or that they may more negatively impact low-income consumers. Um, but if communities were to devote a portion of that revenue to improve access to free, safe, and appealing tap water, particularly in low-income areas, 
This could help mitigate the regressive effects of the taxes by providing a low-cost healthy beverage alternative that's easily accessible. Um, Berkeley, California um, was the first U.S. city to pass a sugar-sweetened beverage tax, and after the tax passed, the city council and community members nominated a panel of experts to provide recommendations regarding how the tax revenue would be spent, and there are other cities now that are establishing similar panels to provide tax revenue funding recommendations, so it'll be important to really emphasize access to safe drinking water <clears throat> in those panels as well. Thank you, Anisha, and take care. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All of the articles mentioned in this podcast are available in open access. Note that to be immediately informed about papers soon to be published in AJPH or about calls for paper, follow me on Twitter. The song was On Your Steps, and the song On Your Steps is composed and played by Francis Jacob. Thank you for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. And for more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at our brand new website, ajph.org.